Our reading tonight is Psalm 116. Uh, it's on page 615 in your church Bibles, uh, Psalm 116, uh, and we'll read the whole psalm. Uh, it's on page 615 uh, in your church Bibles. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the simple-hearted. When I was in great need, he saved me. Be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed. Therefore I said, I am greatly afflicted. And in my dismay I said, all men are liars. How can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have freed me from my chains. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I think um, most people, when faced with death, will cry out to God for help. They don't know who that God is, but they will cry out to somebody for help. In that uh, video that we showed earlier on with um, Jose Enrique, one of the uh, Chilean miners, um, he explained how he was asked by the others to lead them in prayer and how they, they linked hands in a circle and uh, shared their hearts and their burdens before God. And uh, I don't know whether you hear, heard him on the video say the first thing that a man of faith does is cry out to God, cry out for his peace and his strength. And uh, he said there were some people who for the first time were crying out to God. There were others who were backslidden Christians who... Um, promise, if you get me out of here, God, I will really walk with you this time. And I'm sure it would be the same in any disaster, wouldn't it? The person who cries out to God, who's not a Christian, and who's nevertheless rescued by God in his hour of need. I guess there's often two ways that can go. Either he forgets his promises and goes back to his old way of life, or it changes his life completely, and his life is never the same. Which is what happens in the psalm we're looking at this evening, Psalm 116, which Paddy read for us. The psalmist cry for mercy here is a genuine cry for mercy. And when God responds to it, it ends up changing his life. It must be it's one of my favourite psalms. It's uh, got everything in it. It's got the cry for mercy. It's got just the description of God as as a gracious, a compassionate God, one who brings peace. And it describes the reaction of someone who's so grateful to God that he wants to do anything in the world for him. And there's this lifting up of the cup of salvation, as we did this morning, pointing to the cup of suffering 
that Jesus lifted up so that we can lift up the cup of salvation. And then there's the response that God is looking for, that that public commitment of our lives to serve him and to praise him. So if you're looking for a psalm to explain to somebody who's not a Christian what Christianity is all about, this would be a good one, I think, to start with. It's not just a, a cry for rescue from some physical danger, which some of us will have been in. For some, it may have been serious illness. It may have been possibility of death, even. Maybe an accident. Maybe just a, a serious danger. No, it's also a cry of mercy for our spiritual danger, our spiritual situation. I'm going to look at the psalm under three headings this evening. Um, firstly, a human cry of despair. Secondly, a God who responds. The God that Jose and he was talking about, a God who responds to our cry. And finally, a public vow. The picture we have in this psalm is of desperation. Just look at verse 3 and look at these descriptions of the despair that comes out of the psalmist. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. It's dark, it's lonely, there's a terrible fear, and there's a feeling of not being able to escape. I'd just like to show you um, a short clip here from a film called To Save a Life, um, which is about somebody, it's uh, very much um, a film that looks at the lives of various young people, and it's about somebody in that situation of um, calling out, but feeling there's nobody there to hear him. I feel so alone. Like I'm the only person in the world that feels this way and it doesn't even matter. It's not important. It's not important. Well, maybe because I'm not important. Screaming out, doing everything in my power to be heard. It even silences louder than my screams. <laughs> what can I do to be heard but to tear down my world, break apart my life, die, die, die. I just want somebody to listen and, and to not be angry that I'm not content because it's, I'm not. I'm not happy. I feel like I'm stuck in a world where no one wants me. In a world where I'm so completely different, I can never fit in or be understood. I can scream as loud as I want to, but the screams will always fade because, because no one really knows how to listen. Maybe this will show. It's a film about somebody crying out for help, but it's also about a film about somebody there who feels awful because he didn't do anything about that cry for help. And I'm sure we will know many people in the situation, like many people in our world, in, uh, in Long Crendon right now. And maybe you who's experienced that, that feeling of loneliness. Um, maybe children in your school. Maybe colleagues at work. People in your streets who are crying out for help but feel there is nobody there to hear them. But what the psalmist did in this situation, which was very similar, was to call on the name of the Lord. It says in verse 4, Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, save me. 
He realised that the only person who could help him in this situation was God. And if we are Christians here this evening, we would have experienced what it describes here as the the anguish of the grave, the, the fear of death, the feeling that unless we turn to Christ, we will face an eternity separated from him. And so we've called out, if we are Christians, we've called out, oh Lord, save me. It's interesting that uh, further down in verse 10, it says actually over the page, I believed, therefore I said I am greatly afflicted, and in my dismay I said all men are liars. It's not um, totally clear what what he's getting at here. I don't know whether he's been let down by somebody, whether it's the fact that he calls them liars, whether he's been deceived by somebody. But I wonder if it's a sense of realisation that the only person you can really rely on is God. That humans, by their nature, are, are liars. They are unreliable. Certainly for myself, at the time of my conversion, I was let down by somebody and I realised that I myself had let down somebody. And there was a strong feeling for me of that, that human fallibility. That because of sin, there is no human who is fully trustworthy. And we can't help but let each other down, whether we like it or not. And therefore, how can you base your whole life on people? Surely you want to put your faith in somebody who is fully trustworthy, fully reliable. And for me, that pointed me to to my need of the only one who was trustworthy, God himself. In the words of the hymn, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. I'm sure many of you will have had similar experiences. But what happens here when the psalmist calls out to God? Well, he's a God who responds. And one of the the great things about this psalm is that it opens with the words, I love the Lord. I love the Lord. There are some Christians you meet whose love for the Lord is so infectious. And I'm sure you must know some of them. And it's not cheesy or cringy. It's just a a simple love for the Lord that, that permeates what they do, what they say. Um, may not even be particularly sophisticated, but it's genuine, it's sincere. And the love of the psalmist here for the Lord is quite simply, it says, because he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. He was alone in the world, but God heard him. Going back to that film clip, the, the boy's big problem was that no one heard him. Well, he didn't feel that anybody heard him. And sadly, he, he didn't cry out to the one who would listen to him, to God. Now, there are different types of hearing. There is the classic example, I don't know whether it's come up on the screen, of the, uh, yes, here is the husband with his uh, head in the newspaper. Uh, if you can't read the caption, it says, sometimes I think you don't listen to a word I say. Husband disappeared. And then there's the, the active hearing, the, the putting down the paper, the turning towards the person speaking which is what goes on here. Here it says, God turned his ear to me. It's like an antenna. It picks up a, a distress signal and it turns towards the source of that distress signal. There's somebody in need here. And to the person calling out for, for help, imagine what a huge relief it is to know that somebody's heard your cry for help. Imagine what it must have been like for those miners in Chile to, to see that probe come down, to know that people above the surface heard them and have found them. God responds by hearing. 
Secondly, God responds by showing grace and compassion. Look at verse 5. It says, the Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. And this is what the gospel is all about. God's grace and compassion. How do you explain what that grace is? Well, it's there in verse 6. When I was in great need, he saved me. To have compassion is to see somebody's need, to hear them calling out for help, and to rescue them, even when they, they didn't deserve it. Even if the mess that they were in was of their own making. There's no I told you so here. You think of King David who got himself into a real mess with Bathsheba and after he committed adultery with her, he tried to somehow get out of that and ended up in a bigger mess. And after God sends Nathan to point out his sin to him, what does he do? Does he do a, a Wayne Rooney, an appeal against his sentence on the grounds of, uh, that it was too tough? Does he do a John Terry and uh, appeal to have the England captaincy back on the grounds that, well, Capello had made a mistake in the first place and he shouldn't have lost it? No, David calls out to God for mercy. David says, have mercy on me, God. On what basis? According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. This is David saying, have mercy on me, God, because I did wrong. I don't deserve to be forgiven, but I appeal to your love and to your compassion. And God forgave him. God intervenes by by hearing, by showing grace and compassion, and thirdly, by saving and protecting. Look at verse 6. It says, The Lord protects the simple-hearted. When I was in great need, he saved me. The psalmist's call was, save me. Save me from trouble, save me from sorrow, from death, from fear of death. And it's interesting that verse 6 here links the saving with protecting. Because to save someone is to protect them also from further danger. In parenting, it's impossible to to see every danger that your child will get into. Once something happens, then you make sure that uh, it doesn't happen again. You know, when your child falls down the stairs, as I'm sure some of your children will have done, you put a stair gate on and make sure it doesn't happen again. When God rescues us from sin, he doesn't just let us go and do the same again. He gives us the Holy Spirit to protect us. Protect us from temptation and danger. Deliver me from the evil one. Jesus taught us to pray when we pray to the Father. God saves. God protects. And finally, God intervenes by bringing peace. Look at verse 7. Be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. There's a lovely, lovely soothing sense to this, isn't there? The soul has been troubled. And now the reason for its trouble has been sorted out. And so the psalmist is able to say, be at rest once more, O my soul. It's been like your child waking up from a nightmare, frightened, and you calm him down by saying, look, there's, there's, there's no monster in the wardrobe, it's okay, calm down, go back to sleep. In our case, it's usually Liz actually waking up and shouting, there's a rat running across the bed or something. You go, no, no, it's all right, you're dreaming. you're dreaming. No, 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 there's a rat running across, turn the lights on, turn the lights on. So you turn the light on. Oh, I think I was having a dream. It's a good job she's not here tonight. But, um. <laughs> but having known God's peace and salvation, the only natural reaction here for the psalmist is to, 
to want to show his gratitude. And so he says here in a great line, in verse 12, how can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? How can I repay him? It's not how can I earn my salvation. It's you've been so good to me. How can I show you just how thankful I am? And of course we will never be able to repay that debt but it fills us with gratitude that should want us to do anything for God. I think one of the great things about that compassion video which we showed last Sunday morning was the, the look of gratitude in the faces of these children. Now, they knew there was nothing they could do to repay their, their sponsors, but the fact their sponsors had given them this, this real chance filled them with that sense of gratitude. And also they praised God because they knew this love must come from God. We can't repay our debt to God, but we can show our gratitude. So how do we do that? Well, it's, it's here in the psalm. Because the psalmist says twice in verse 14 and 18, he says, I will fulfil my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. I will promise to follow the Lord and I will make that promise public. It's a, it's a public profession of faith here for, for us. And for us as Christians, it's what we do when we're baptised. We proclaim to those present that we belong to Jesus. We have a new master now, a new Lord. And we're not ashamed of him. Baptism is not, as some might think, a sort of take-it-or-leave-it thing. It is expected of of every Christian. If you'd just like to turn to to Acts um, 22 with me, very briefly. This is uh, Paul uh, returning to Jerusalem and the Jews stirring up the crowd against him. And he tells them his testimony about, in verse 12, how a man named Ananias came to him and restored his sight. And he said to him, you will be a witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And then he says in verse 16, and now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptised, wash your sins away, calling on his name. So I'd say to you, if you are a Christian who's not yet been baptised, what are you waiting for? One of our features of our society is the sort of secrecy around having a faith. You know, yes, I have a faith, but um, it's a private thing for me, some people will say. I don't really want to talk about it. But do you see anywhere in the Bible people coming to faith and then just keeping it to themselves and saying, actually, no, it's, it's a private thing. The Samaritan woman, remember the Samaritan woman at the well, how she rushed into the town and said... Come see a man who told me everything. Could this be the Christ? There was, of course, Peter who did for a while try and keep it to himself and uh, denied having anything to do with Jesus and got him in a mess. And if we're not public about our faith, if we try and hide it, then we too will end up, if we're not careful, denying Jesus. You can't be a, a secret Christian. Well, what are these vows that the psalmist makes in the presence of all the people? That's what he calls on the name of the Lord. Look at verse 13. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Or in verse 17, I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. You may ask, well, how are these two, two verses linked? I think they're linked because the people of Israel offered wine as a thank offering to God. But for us living this side of the cross, 
it takes on a much greater significance. For us, the cup, the cup is the cup of suffering that Jesus drank on our behalf. And so, as we recall the words in 1 Corinthians, it says here, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? For us to take part in the Lord's Supper, as we did this morning, is to lift up the cup of salvation. It's to give thanks to God that because Jesus took the cup of suffering, we are saved, we are in his debt. Now you may think, well, why is that calling on the, calling on the name of the Lord? Surely he's done that once back in, in verse 4. It says, I, I called on the name of the Lord, O Lord, save me. And he did so. Why are you carrying on calling on the name of the Lord? Give him a rest, surely. Why is he saying, I will call on him as long as I live? Well, to call on God continuously as long as you live is not to be a a, a bit of a pain, a bit of a a stalker. It's to say that I depend on you, God. I will always depend on you whilst I'm in this world. And the only way I can really do anything to your glory is if I keep coming to you for help and doing things in your strength. It's not like when your children come to you and say, can you give us a bit of help with uh, this homework here? And you say, well, I I can, but let's see what you can do on your own first of all before you simply get me to do it for you. Now, God wants you to come to him straight away for help because he expects you to do it, but he wants you to do it in his strength. The trouble is we often just go ahead and do things in our strength. We think we can do them, that we're capable of doing them. We use all our human strength to do that. We forget about God. And only when things go wrong, we're having a, a harder time about it. It's not going quite as we thought it would go. Then we come to God and say, God, look, just help us here. Maybe and we have to keep our, asking ourselves as a church these questions. You know, maybe the reason why the building project application didn't go through the first time was maybe because we tried to do it too much in our own strength or maybe because we just didn't call on the Lord enough. Maybe it's just a lesson to teach us to rely on him more and call on his name, to keep coming back to him and calling on him. Maybe the reason we still haven't got a youth leader, we're still looking for one, is because we haven't asked God enough for help to find one. Maybe we just think, well, we'll just advertise and the applications will flood in. Well, the second aspect of the vows that we should make are to declare ourselves his servant. Have a look at verse 16. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have freed me from my chains. Now, first of all, it seems a little bit funny to say, on the one hand, you freed me, and on the other, I'm your servant. It seems a bit of a, a contradiction. But it's saying, I'm willingly your servant. You know, I'm not coming to you and doing what you say because I have to, because I'm obliged to. I want to serve you and nobody else. God loves our service. He loves our ministry. He's given us gifts to use, and there's nothing worse than seeing gifts that have been given remaining idle. It's been like seeing an expensive yacht moored there for the whole of the year and just taken out for a day's sale. Or like seeing somebody with an incredible sporting talent just give up because they can't be bothered anymore. I think this vow to serve helps also understand what it says there in verse 15, which is um, a verse which you may be familiar with. It's one that gives us comfort at times of death and bereavement. 
precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I wonder whether that preciousness there is in the sense that it is in some ways costly for God. For God to take somebody out of this world to go and be with him is great for them. It's great for God just to see them, to have them in his presence. But it's also costly for God in some ways, isn't it? Because he's taking somebody out who is serving him, who's glorifying him in this world. As Christians, we vow to serve God more than anything else. That is what we do when we become members of this church. We, we vow to serve him in this church. That is what the showstoppers, the showstoppers, showstoppers team did this morning. They vowed to serve him this week in the holiday club. We vow to serve God. And finally, we vow to worship God with his people. The vows here are made in the presence, it says, of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Verse 19 there. To worship God is to commit your life to him. It involves giving thanks to God. It involves serving him with your life. But it also involves being part of his people. As we said already, the Christian life is not a private, secret thing. It is something we're meant to do together. God has given us each other here for our encouragement. We're accountable to each other. That is why we make these vows before each other. And that's why we can enjoy worshipping each other as we do this evening. How can we enjoy the inspiration that comes from meeting with each other, from hearing other Christians talk about the way God has saved them as we heard this evening. We come and we praise the Lord.